Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes, soon I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for this wonderful book and the privilege we have had to go through it and looking at every aspect of it, and now coming to the very end, the very conclusion of it. Lord, we pray that you will help us to understand what the author intended, and that we not only would understand it, but we would understand uh, how this might apply in our own lives. And Lord, even today, that we can take uh, these things that were said at the very end, at the very conclusion, and to um, gain from them spiritually. So, Lord, we thank you once again for the joy of being a part of a church family and uh, seeing all these developments, these graduates and uh, these new uh, babies that are coming into our families. And, Lord, we we rejoice because this is a wonderful part of uh, being a, a family of God. And, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of Christian fellowship and how we can have time to Uh, Just enjoy being together and praying for one another, supporting one another. And so, Lord, again, today we we pray that uh, you would work in our midst as we focus our hearts on you, that our attention would be on your truth, your word, that we would be open and receptive and ready to uh, receive it. And, Lord, we pray that as we worship, that uh, everything that is said and done would be pleasing in your sight, that we would... Um, offer up to you that sacrifice of of praise, the fruit of our lips, and give glory to your name once again. And Lord, we thank you again for this wonderful privilege of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you here this morning like long, drawn-out blessings at the dinner table? Let me see your hands. I don't see too many hands out there. No, most of us like short ones, don't we, when we're hungry. This is why, you know, our kids have their go-tos. This is why we teach children the usual, you know, something like God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for this food. By His hands we are fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. Something like, and my grandkids go, Amen. Something like that at the end. When we're hungry, we like short blessings. And really, that's what we find at the end of this book. 
we see a short collection of benedictions and blessings. And you know, it's interesting to take note of some of the most significant blessings and benedictions in the Bible. For example, in Numbers 6, 24 through 26, Moses gave what is often referred to as the priestly blessing. Here's what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. I'm sure that's familiar to you. The book of Jude ends this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That is a wonderful benediction to that book. The book of Romans ends this way. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but is now manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to you to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be glory forever. Amen. And so we see these wonderful blessings usually right at the very end of various books of the New Testament. In the epistle to the Ephesians, we find a wonderful blessing right in the middle of that book. It says in Ephesians 3:20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And then in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14, Paul gives this blessing simply, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These are just a few of the amazing blessings found in Scripture, but we'll see another one this morning in our final section of this book. This morning, of course, we are wrapping up our study of the book of Hebrews. And this message that we find here brings us to the end of our journey through this book. What we have here is a conclusion to this sermon. And in this final section, we can really see the heart of the writer. Back in verse 17, we saw that a pastor is to be a watchman over the souls of his congregation. And here we see the heart of that watchman. Now we don't know who this man is, 
But we do know that he had a great burden for these people, and that comes out loud and clear in his final words. We're going to divide this final section into five main parts, and this might seem a little piecemeal at first, but there are really five main elements to this concluding section. So first, we see a desire, a desire. Look with me at verse 18. Pray for us. Stop right there. His desire includes a request for the prayers of his people. This is so critical. Every leader in the church is dependent upon the prayers of the saints. And interestingly, he's using what is known as the authorial plural here, which is a stylistic device for referring to himself. He's really saying, pray for me. And the present tense here means that the need is for continual prayer. This should be understood as a durative. Keep on praying. Keep on praying for me. Apparently, the author of this book is a leader in this church, or he's a leader in a group of churches, and we don't know if he is an elder in this particular congregation, but the point is that every leader in the church is in desperate need of the prayers of the people. Why is that? Well, because church leaders are made up of the same stuff as their congregation, as those they lead. They are human, and they have human weaknesses. They have limitations and blind spots and all sorts of weaknesses, just like the people they serve do. In fact, there are temptations that leaders in the church often face that are unique to leaders. Why is that? I believe it's because Satan knows that if he can get the leaders to fall into sin, then he can impact the whole congregation. If the leader falls, many others will go down with him. And that's why Satan often targets pastors and church leaders. And that is also why it is so important to pray for your pastors. Of course, the Apostle Paul did not hesitate to ask for the prayers of the people he served. In Ephesians 6.19, he said, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now, here the prayer request was for boldness to proclaim the gospel. But Paul said, pray for me, that God would enable me to do that. This is similar to what he wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you and Paul's heart, of course, is for the gospel and for the message of Christ to go out to the world. But Paul said, pray, pray for me in this. He wrote in First Thessalonians 5.25, Brethren, 
pray for us. He wrote in Romans 15:30, I urge you, brethren, to strive together with me in your prayers to God. In 2 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11, he said, He will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Paul understood the power of prayer. And of course, a godly pastor ought to have his own prayer life, but he is also desperately in need of the prayers of the people. He must have a line of prayer support for the work that he's called to do. In fact, I believe you can rightfully say that the greatest need that a pastor has is a praying people. Years ago, I heard this illustration and I have never forgotten it. It is said that a reporter once went to the church where Charles Spurgeon was the pastor. And he wanted to know the source of his spiritual power. And so Spurgeon immediately took him and led him down into the basement of the church. And there, kneeling on the floor, were hundreds of intercessors pleading to God for the souls of men. And Spurgeon said, that's where the power comes from. It's through the prayers of the people. There is no way you can ever underestimate how important this is. And the truth of the matter is, the author of Hebrews believed strongly that as God's people prayed, that God would answer their prayers. And he believed that the Lord would respond to their prayers and grant him the desires of his heart. And so he asks for their prayers. You say, what were the desires of his heart? Well, he gives us two of them here. First, in regard to relationship. Go back to verse 18 again. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. His first desire was to have a clear conscience as to how he conducted himself among them. This is very similar to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 11 and 12. In verse 11, he asks them to pray for him. And then in verse 12, he says, For our proud conscience is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.2, By the manifestation of truth, we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Not only was Paul's own conscience clear, but he was commending his message to the conscience of those who heard it, that this was indeed the message of God. And notice back in Hebrews 13 that our author is stating that he is certain he does, in fact, have a 
clear conscience in this regard. He's not being arrogant or egotistical here. He's simply stating that to the best of his knowledge, he has ministered to them with a pure motive. He no doubt had not ministered perfectly, but he had ministered to them faithfully and with a pure heart. He had a good conscience about that. He had a clear conscience that he had conducted himself honorably in their midst. And perhaps the the prayer request here is that his good reputation among them would not become twisted or distorted in any way. He wants his testimony among them to remain uncontaminated and strong. So he asks for that request. There's a second desire here as well, and that is in regard to returning, to returning. Look with me at verse 19. And I urge you all the more to do this, that is to pray for him, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, we don't really know the reason why, but apparently he had been separated from them. It appears that there is something that is keeping him away from them, but he's longing to be back with them again. His specific request is that the Lord would allow him to return sooner rather than later. Verse 23 tells us that Timothy has been released from prison, and perhaps this has something to do with what has been hindering him from returning because he seems to be waiting for Timothy. Another possibility is poor health. This delay may have been due to some sort of an illness we're not told about. So if that is the case, then what he's asking them to pray for would be his healing, that God would heal him and he then would be able to return to them. But the truth of the matter is, we don't really know the details because the Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know he longs to be back with them again. And he's asking that they would pray the Lord would make that possible soon. But not only do we see a desire here, secondly, we have a doxology. Doxology. The doxology recorded in verses 20 and 21 is one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. It is more than just a doxology. It is a prayer that God would enable his readers and really us as well to be fully dedicated to his will and purposes. He asked them to pray for him. Now he's going to pray for them. Look at it with me. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Wonderful doxology. This doxology is beautiful for five reasons. Five reasons. First, because it answers the problem of hostility. Look at the first phrase of verse 20. Now the God 
of peace. How is He our God of peace? He is our God of peace because He Himself has made peace with us through His Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, He has dealt with the problem of hostility caused by sin. God Himself solved this problem for us. In Colossians 1.20, we're told that God made peace through the blood of His cross. The hostility has been wiped away because of Christ's atoning work. But notice this also implies that God, by His very nature, is the God of peace. Peace resides in God Himself. All peace belongs to God. There is no peace in the world. It only comes from Him. It resides in God. Listen, man's craving for peace will never be satisfied apart from God. There is only one avenue to peace, and that is in God Himself. And many have tried to find peace in some other way, but there is no other way. There is no other source of peace It only comes from God, and especially by being in a right relationship with God through faith in His only begotten Son. So this doxology answers the problem of hostility. But there's a second reason why this doxology is so beautiful, and that is because it answers the problem of mortality. Mortality. Go back to verse 20 again. Now, the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Of course, that is a reference to Christ. And the greatest demonstration of divine power in the history of mankind is when God raised Christ up on the third day. And the blessings for us have to do with the fact that all those who are now in Christ Jesus will also experience that same resurrection. God has solved for us the problem of mortality. His resurrection became the guarantee of our own immortality. And the Bible is very clear on that. And I won't take the time this morning, but just go read 1 Corinthians 15. Absolutely clear. His resurrection guarantees the resurrection for all who are in Him. We no longer have to fear death in any way. You know, earlier in this book, the author had said that Jesus destroyed the devil and the power of death and delivered those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The fear of death holding us in Bondage and slavery, and Jesus Christ delivered us from that. This power of death has been broken, and this fear of death has been eliminated by Jesus Christ. When John Wesley's godly mother, Susanna, lay dying, her last request was this. She said, children, as soon as I am released... Sing a song of praise to God. That is freedom from the fear of death. 
That is the secure hope of every genuine child of God. Praise God, we serve the God of peace who raised Jesus up from the dead, defeating death for all time. Thirdly, this doxology answers the problem of anxiety. Notice, Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is our true pastor. In John 10:11, he's called the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In 1 Peter 5, 4, he's described as the chief shepherd who will one day return for his sheep. But here he's referred to as the great shepherd who watches daily over his sheep. And listen, that totally answers the problem of anxiety. We know he is constantly watching over us. He is the all-powerful one. And therefore, we have nothing to be anxious about. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.25, we see where believers in Christ are reminded, or you are you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. He's the one that shepherds us. He's the one who guards over our souls. And then Peter promises that when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. What an assurance that is. So this doxology then answers the problem of hostility. It answers the problem of mortality. It answers the problem of anxiety. But fourthly, it answers the problem of iniquity. Iniquity. Go back to verse 20 again. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. God made peace with us through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. The new covenant is the eternal covenant. It is a covenant that can never be broken. It was established by the blood of Christ on the cross. And unlike the blood that was shed under the old covenant, the blood of Christ provides eternal life for all who enter into the new covenant through faith in Him. Our sin has been paid for in full. And our iniquity is now under His blood, totally cleansed, forever covered. And then finally, this doxology is beautiful because it answers the problem of inability. Inability. Look with me at verse 21. May He equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Living the Christian life has absolutely nothing to do with walking in our own power. Jesus is the one who equips us to do God's will. He is the one who is working in us to accomplish what is pleasing in His sight. That's why all the glory goes to Him. And notice, every good thing comes from Him. There is a tremendous 
sufficiency that comes from the equipping of Christ. This enables us to do God's will. And listen, folks, it is critical that we affirm the sufficiency that comes with Christ. What does that tell us? It tells us we don't have to try to supplement the provision of Christ with something else. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We don't have to try to add anything to that. And we know that he has the power to produce in us what pleases him. What God calls us to do, he enables us to do. And of course, Paul put it like this in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do the work of his good pleasure. God solves the problem of our inability as he works in us to accomplish his good pleasure. And notice, he not only supplies the power that we need, he also enables our will to do his good pleasure. He also changes our will. He changes our hearts so that our will lines up with his will. And he does all this to accomplish his purpose. Now, the word amen at the end of verse 21 really signals the end of this book. The last three verses make up what we would call a postscript. It contains more personal matters. So we have a desire expressed in this passage. We have a doxology. But thirdly, we find a directive. Directive. Look at verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. The directive, the command or urging, is to bear with this word of exhortation. And here the author characterizes this book. This is the main reason why I call this a sermon. The phrase that is used for word of exhortation is used in Acts 13.15 to refer to a sermon. John MacArthur says the book of Hebrews is a great treatise preached with a pen. It is an urgent call to the readers to come to a single-minded devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and to complete satisfaction with the new covenants. Now, when he says, bear with this word of exhortation, he says it in almost an apologetic fashion. He's pointing out that this is not a very lengthy treatise, but he's asking them to receive it with receptive hearts and minds. Interestingly, the Greek word translated bear with is the same word, that we find in 2 Timothy 4.3. And there, Paul says, the time will come when, when they will not endure, that is, they will not bear with sound doctrine. But here he pleads with them to bear with sound doctrine. 
The phrase bear with is the very same root word, echo. So this sermon, this word of exhortation that we call the book of Hebrews, we know is filled with sound doctrine. And although it is relatively short, under 10,000 words, it is a powerful exhortation. In fact, it is shorter than the book of Romans or the book of 1 Corinthians, and it can be led in, read in less than an hour. But it contains many powerful truths for us to live by. Another interesting thing in this directive is a play on words here. The word for urge is the familiar word parakaleo, while the word for exhortation is paraklesis. And so we see these similar words used. Of course, parakaleo is used to refer to the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside believers to comfort and enable. But he's saying, bear with, come alongside, be in agreement with this word of exhortation. So we see here a true pastor's heart as he urges his people to heed this exhortation and to fully embrace the new covenant, and all it means. Well, fourthly, we have a detail. A detail. Look with me in verse 23. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. The mention of Timothy here has led many to conclude that Paul must be the author of this book, But that is not necessarily the case. The name Timothy was a very common one in that day and time. So it is possible that this is pointing to a different Timothy than the one associated with Paul. However, most Bible scholars take this to refer to the same Timothy. Most take this to be a reference to Paul's missionary companion, his brother and trusted delegate who was associated with Paul in the writing of six of his letters. But the fact that he's only referred to here merely as Timothy means that he's also very familiar to this congregation. And the implication is that this would have been very good news to them to hear that he had been released from prison. He's referred to here as as our brother, so we know he was well known to them. However, we know nothing at all about this imprisonment. Although we should not be surprised that he, like his teacher Paul, would be put in jail for preaching the gospel, we're not given any information in Scripture about this particular situation. It is interesting, however, that when Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, that it seems that he had been faltering in his faithfulness. And so Paul urged him to endure under persecution. And from this verse, it appears he did exactly that. He was willing to be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. But notice that the hope of the author of Hebrews is that Timothy would join him soon and then together they would be able to return to this congregation. 
And by the way, the fact that the author of this book would likely be returning to them soon really added motivation for them to respond in genuine faith to the message of this book. If they knew he would soon be with them again, they knew that they likely would be confronted with his own challenge of how they received this book. Well, finally, we see the denouement. That is a French word that means a final resolution or conclusion. This is what we have in verses 24 and 25. Look at it with me. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Verse 24 is a parting greeting to the entire church, specifically including its leaders. Today it might read, say hello to everyone in the church. This was a common way of writing a greeting. But notice that he adds, those from Italy greet you. There's been a lot of debate among scholars about this statement. It really does not affect the book at all either way. It could be read those of Italy or it could be read those in Italy. If it means those in Italy, then it probably rules out Rome as a place from where this book was written. If it means those from Italy, then it could mean that this was written from Rome and that these are those from there who are traveling abroad. But there's nothing really conclusive here because the Greek can mean either one. It is possible that there were some Italian Christians with the author of this book who are sending their greetings along with him, but we don't really know. And then notice the final statement here. Grace be with you all. What a wonderful way to end this incredible book. Here is the final declaration that the gospel of the new covenant is the gospel of grace alone. This message is far superior to the old covenant. I can't put it any better than Ron Phillips who writes, Grace, like the theme of a great symphony, crescendos again and again in this book. It is by the grace of God that Jesus tasted death for us, chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus sits on the throne of grace to hear our prayers, chapter 4, verse 16. Those who refuse salvation insult the Spirit of grace, chapter 10, verse 29. And finally, our lives are to be established by grace, chapter 13, verse 9. God's unmerited, undeserved grace has been poured out upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the wonderful theme of the new covenant. Let's fully Embrace that message and live by God's grace. Well, as they say in the movie business, that's a wrap. We have 
wrapped up our study of this book. This one only took us two years, so we literally cruised through it. But starting next week, we'll start something new. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. Lord, we thank you for the author of this book, even though we don't clearly know who he was. We thank you that ultimately he was inspired by your Holy Spirit to give your truth. And that is absolutely trustworthy. And so, Lord, we thank you for this message of the new covenant. We thank you that because of Christ, we're under the new covenant, no longer under the old. Lord, we thank you for your saving grace. We know it's only by your grace that we have eternal life. It's only by the work of Christ, the atoning work, which was absolutely sufficient. So, Lord, we uh, pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they would come to know you today. Lord, we pray that um, all of us as believers, that we might live by your grace, that we might walk in your grace, that we might uh, be people who extend grace to others, that we would uh, follow the patterns that you've given to us in this book, that we might... Be faithful to pray, to pray especially for leaders in the church, but that we also would be fully committed to to walk with you and to uh, accomplish your purpose, to do your will in this world. Lord, we pray that you enable us to do that. So I pray now as we respond to you, that you would help us to respond in a way that would please and honor you in Jesus' name.